Hello, and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I'm joined by Richard Worrell. So, do you want to um, introduce yourself a bit? Um, yeah, so I've known Akshay for like four or five, however many God knows how many years, and he's been asking me to appear on this podcast, not since it started, but pretty early on, and we've, we we're both pretty crap at organising it, and we've, finally we're here, so we're going to, it's, it's, it's good to finally make it happen. Yeah. Um, which is kind of useful because I had no guests this week otherwise. And that's why Akshay invited me on because he couldn't find anyone better than me. I was bottom of the list of totally. options yep, totally. and he went, all right, Rich, as there's no one else. No, it was just, it was just coincidence that I asked you last night, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, I need to, I need to get a guest. <laughs> but um, oh, what are you going to tell me about? Uh, topic I thought I'd go with was exploitation cinema. Actually, wanted he likes sort of dark, sinister sort of stuff, and there's a lot of that in the realm of exploitation cinema. Okay, that works then. I don't really know too much about it, so neither uh, does anyone. <laughs> I I basically just know it exists. <laughs> You'll have seen exploitation movies without realizing it. Is the funny thing. Once I get into it, there'll be things you don't even realize qualify. Okay, so yeah, and I'm going to be talking about. Um, I guess it's kind of similar because uh, it shows up in films a lot and culture. Um, you're talking about the about martial arts using striking pressure points as a martial art. Ooh, interesting. Um, including the famous Dim Mac or Touch of Death. <laughs> yeah, which shows up plenty in films and comics and except yeah. everything pretty much. But yeah, so this week we are both drinking Cornish Pale Ale. Um, brewed exclusively for Marks and Spencer because we are middle class this week. I have elevated the social class of this show. Yes, um, <laughs> thank you for paying for my drinks. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that, I think we'll play a promo and we'll be back with some stories. And and this week we have a promo for Murder Was the Case. So, we'll be back in a few seconds. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture. Madness. Dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case featuring author and investigative criminologist Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. And we are back. So, Rich, uh, I normally get people a choice. Do you want to, do you want to talk about your something first, or should I? Let's do you. Cool. Um, we're talking about uh, using pressure points uh, in martial arts. So, first of all, do you know what pressure points are? Yeah, I think so. It's the bits of the body that have sort of disproportionate influence on your well-being, be it sort of good or bad, I think. Essentially, yeah. It's what? like like vital points in the body that right, like, I follow. will... Uh, have some effect. If okay. Pressed, but yeah, this like it's used in acupuncture a lot. 
like and it uses acupuncture points and yeah, it's like they tend to put um, needles into acupuncture points. True. Your point one: horses benefit from acupuncture. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. It's been proven to work. To start going into the bits where it starts using it in martial arts instead of just the medicine, the acupuncture stuff, uh-huh. medicine, whatever. You have to look at something called pharmacolai from from India. All right. Which is a Tamil term for uh, knowledge of vital points, and it's using like. Uh, massage, alternative medicine, uh, yoga, martial arts. Yeah, basically it uses uh, the body's pressure points uh, to either heal or cause harm. And like the healing part of it is called um, Vedya Murai. And yeah, it's said to be used in... A- this is going to be a fun for ex- pronunciations because I don't know what I'm saying. Um, I'm just going to roll with it. Um, Ayurveda and Siddha medicine. Where is it? Let me see. Let me see if I can say it. Okay, go on. It's uh, here. Ayurveda and uh, Cedar. Cool, we'll go for that. <laughs> Neither of us is right. One of us will be, maybe. Then they use it to treat patients suffering from stuff like paralysis, sciatica, uh, strokes, arthritis, all sorts. And it's got a counterpoint, which is a combat application of it, uh, which is known as either Vama Adi or Mama Adi, uh, which means pressure point striking. Which is generally done either empty-handed or with a blunt weapon, like a stick or a staff. And it targets nerves, veins, tendons, uh, soft tissues, ligaments, organs, and bone joints. So stuff like that. And um, Ramakalai actually has a folklore origin uh, where it's traced to the god Shiva um, from Hinduism. Classic god. Mm-hmm. And who was said to have taught it to its, his son, uh, Murugan, and... Um, Later, basically, Murrigan disguised himself as an old man and uh, taught the sage Agastya this um, pressure point thing <laughs> to put in to put in uh, any terms that I can say right now. So, um, but yeah, this sage uh, recorded it and started teaching it to his student, and it spread basically. And pseudomedicine is also um, said to be from this guy. I feel like it's not just India, this thing. This feels... I swear there's some similar equivalent in the Far East yeah, that they um, play with. Like, this is basically... Um, from what I can tell, this is where it traces from. Um, and, it, like, it's... Because it's quite a... It's a thing in China, Japan, uh, a lot of Eastern countries. Yeah, so yeah I'd associate it more with the Far East, if I'm yeah, honest. same. Um, like, this came up more when I was researching. So, um, yes, it's also, like, spread to the... West, but that's a lot more recently. That's like the last couple of centuries, probably. If that, to be honest, probably the last hundred. The, yeah, it, the, it wasn't that. The Eastern world was quite quite closed off until late eighteen hundreds. Something like that. I don't know. No, you cloned your history, man. I mean, no, I mean, not like the martial art itself, but like uh, just the uh, teachings of pressure points and stuff. Yeah, but pretty much the Eastern world did not share its knowledge of anything really this until is reasonable. relatively recently. Yeah, like as a there's a book uh, called the uh, Sushruta uh, Samhita uh, from the se- from the fourth century, around about, uh, which literally means su- Sushruta's Compendium, and it's actually one of the most important surviving texts of uh, medicine and surgery uh, from ancient times. And in that, it, it shows 108 vital points on the human body, um, 64 of which were classified as being lethal if properly struck with a fist or a stick. I'm going to ask where isn't vital when you got that many. Like, that's most of the human body. Mm. It's like, um, th- to be fair, you're, you're right. 
<laughs> like it's real easy to sound all clever and fancy and then you go well actually they've sort of highlighted that all of the body is set, is just kind of sensitive to being hit mm. I mean it like when it's a pressure point like these are meant to be like pinpoint like nerves but yeah like um this book the social Meter, um was like I said it was known for its uh, stuff on medicine and surgery uh, especially for its approach as it was, and it was like the first in human history, uh, according to the internet, that um, to suggest that a student of surgery should learn about the human body and its organs by dissecting a dead body. Okay. And the text basically says that students should practice on objects resembling a diseased uh, or body part. That's interesting because a lot of um, early, I say early, sort of Middle Ages, sort of Christian education was very anti-dissection, mm. and uh, it was always described as being kind of you should desecrate the body but there was always this undertone of is the church worried that if people kind of discover things they might discover that the teachings of the church are incorrect there was a very there was a real kind of concern that science was at odds with with these things whereas this seems to have a sort of spiritual origin but be very what you're saying in favor of sort of exploration and discovery yeah like um sushruta was like basically known as a sage in the area as well, like one of ten, like so basically a wise man. So he knew all sorts of shit. Um, on like Wikipedia actually has a list of all the chapters of this book, and it's uh, it's got some pretty interesting ones in there. I, I think there were two that stuck out, but I have not written them down, and I can't remember what they are now. I believe one was a uh, attacks on the super supernatural in this book of medicine and stuff, which is great. Um, and, well, I, you, and honestly, you, I'd be very interested to read that. Well, if, if you, you see, if you see medicine as in any way a kind of spiritual thing, then the supernatural are probably the things both benefiting and harming it, right? Mm. I mean, it's more like it's just that I find it. I I think that would be quite interesting to read it from a medical perspective. Yeah, I can uh, because that. I love folklore, and um, having and having me- a medical book talk about folklore makes me very happy. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, like like I said, uh, it said they should practice on objects uh, similar to a body part, right? And like for example, like incision studies uh, were recommended to be t- done on like squash, bottle gourd, cucumbers, um, and leather bags filled with fluids and bladders of dead animals. Delightful. Yeah. Um, Love me some bladders. Yeah, um, not so vegan. Uh, yeah, so uh, his work basically forms a lot of basis for the medical discipline of uh, Ayurveda, like we said earlier, uh, that kind of medicine kind of thing, uh, which basically got taught alongside martial arts, and um, with like a lot of references from like sources around there, um, it's pretty certain that a lot of like there's a lot of uh, sources that give evidence to um, South Asia having uh, early fighters that practiced uh, attacking and defending vital points, right. Which is quite interesting to me. So there's evidence for it actually being a thing rather than just being from stories. Yeah, it was successful and... Yeah. Certainly uh, in the wider world, soldiers from that region were always respected. Yeah. Was, like, I believe there was, like, there was at least one battle with, sold- with some soldiers um, taught trained in this as well. Okay. So um, I can't remember what it's called, but yeah. I was reading about it on, like, online. But yeah, like, uh, the vital point stuff, like, it wasn't just confronting... It was just wasn't just humans... But they also uh, learn learn the ones of elephants as well. Is that because war elephants were such a big part of the sort of armed forces of the day? Probably because they were the kind of 
equivalent of a tank. Yeah, at I mean, the time. Yeah, because um, basically learning these learning these kind of points was um, mostly important. It was important for mammoths, who basically elephant keepers. Right. Um, so just elephants in general wasn't just uh, war elephants, but um, prodding particular points with sticks would uh, elicit uh, various responses. Yep. Uh, like bringing it under control, making them kneel. What and like warriors that would ride elephants would learn to attack the uh, points of enemy elephants uh, during battle, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Which supposedly could either kill or frighten animals uh, in a battle because um, war elephants scary shit. I think also elephants were never very tame animals at the best of times. If you figure out how to spook them, they'll they'll just run rampant. They're not like say horses that which are very disciplined. Mm. But yeah, it said that like um, at least like National Museums of Sri Lanka said there's about 86 for elephants. And a guy called Dr. Felix Mann suggests that the reason that the African elephant wasn't trained to the same extent as the Indian elephant was because that um, the points of the African elephant art is known because they haven't been studied. <laughs> is that is that just because it's the Asian elephant? I mean, they call it the Asian elephant. It's basically the Indian elephant, isn't it? It's yeah. basically native to India, so yeah. it was that exact region. Mm-hmm. Because the study of pressure points wasn't a thing in Africa. Yeah. Um, though is this just a suggestion rather than like an actual definite, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Like another, another person that was uh, attributed to starting uh, using vital points as a fighting thing was a guy called Minamoto uh, no Yoshimitsu from Japan. He was a samurai, and like according to his uh, history and stuff, um, he was known for dissecting the corpses of men that he that were killed in battle uh, to study them for learning vital points. Okay, um, sounds gruesome. For striking and joint lock techniques, but yeah, it said that um, was what Neat Zealand got passed down through his family. Um, um, his great grandson later on took this surname Takeda, and then uh, um, and had learned uh, the techniques that were passed down uh, until the 19th century, which is much later. Yeah. Uh, and at, at which point, um, Takeda Sokaku st- uh, started teaching him to the public, uh, which is when it became a bit more no- known in the public eye. Okay. Um, Probably still just within China, I would guess. Mm. Uh, no, this is Japan. It's like, things like, I'm, like I'm, picking, I'm jumping around a lot because there's different places that have different kind of origins or different things that have different origins but it's very similar um and yeah I'm just trying to get it all into one episode um thousands of years of history compressed into about 10 minutes I'm trying my best I've picked about 30 years for my topic yeah I mean I got a bit carried away you're certainly an ambitious fellow I just kept clicking right links (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and the next thing I knew it was three in the morning so uh, yeah but yeah so now we're going to jump again to a different kind of martial art um, which is similar called uh, Angampura uh, which, is a, which is from Sri Lanka which uh, combined uh, stuff like combat techniques self-defense sport exercise meditation <laughs> uh, there's a lot of um, like, I was actually um, like one thing I realised after doing research is that there's a lot of Indian martial arts being a big thing at the time, which isn't really a thing you you think of when you can, when you think of India, like back in the day. No, it's certainly not the first thing. Yeah, um, people think of India as a sort of martial country, as a sort of military, but very much in the 
like sort of imperial spirit. Is it? Yeah, is like, it when um, people talk about the British Empire, they famously comment on how the Indian soldiers were among as, the best? It's about as western western as you'd expect for the for the East, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very. They were good under the British. There's not, but there's not much discussed about what they brought to the that's table themselves. Because, yeah, that's probably because the British didn't want anyone to know about this, and also because they kept killing each other, which probably didn't help. Not ideal. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Angampura basically um, sort of uses hand-to-hand fighting and. Uh, the use of indigenous weapons like staves, knives, swords, and like uh, etc. There's like these steel whip things as well. Um, and it's also uh, known to have used something called Maya Angan, which uses which used spells and incantations for combat. So uh, and its main feature was its use of pressure point attacks, which was used to inflict pain or permanently paralyze an opponent. Good grief. Using both striking and grappling techniques, like traditionally, they'd fight until a opponent was caught in a submission lock and they couldn't escape. Uh, with the use of weapon weapons being discretionary, like they'd have a perimeter defined in advance. Like I, like I picture it like a bit like in Black Panther. Have you ever seen, have you seen that yet? Yeah, I saw it. It's like a bit in the fight with a with a, a circle around the fighters. <laughs> Guys with like, the spears. Yeah, right at the beginning. So it's it's not a spoiler really. Is it? It's just like, it's, it's nah, it's, yeah, nah, scene. Nah, it's cool. We can talk about it. It's like the f- first five minutes of the film. Yeah, <laughs> like, and yeah, like in some cases they'd uh, actually fight in a pit. All right. Well. Like, but yeah, like it kind of started um, declining a lot with the advent of colonialism, which Ugh. is which was great for everyone. Everyone loves colonialism. There, there's no one out there that says, "Oh man, I I really really didn't like being subjugated." Oh, I think we've shot on colonialism a few times in this podcast now. <laughs> but, yeah, basically, uh, it basically was almost completely lost as part of the country's heritage um, because the British admin uh, basically prohibited its practice due to its da- due to the dangers uh, a civilian populace could, could cause of it. I, yeah, I assume it didn't help either that when it became associated with the Far East... In popular culture, they kind of got kind of that market cornered. I mean, it, they just didn't. I mean, a lot of it was that they didn't want their civilians knowing any martial arts <laughs> because that shit was dangerous. Yeah, civil unrest was uh, ultimately yeah. what destroyed the empire, or, or at least India. The Indian side of it, it was not so much. Uh, it wasn't like a violent revolution. It was a mixture of peaceful protest and civil unrest. Just kind of yeah. the general public not being happy with what was going on. Um, but yeah, like they also like burn down any of the uh, huts used to uh, practice, and if they've found someone practicing, they'd uh, shoot them in the knee, and essentially crippling them. Ouch! However, it did survive in a few families, um, and it came back into mainstream uh, Sri Lankan culture post independence. When was Sri Lankan independence? Do we know? We got I that. I believe it was. Maybe 60s. I guarantee it wouldn't be that late because India was like 45. Uh, the empire was basically I'm over thinking by, the, by the start of the 80s. Wait. Should I Google it? Do it. Google it, man. Okay, no, it was 1948. That, that makes a lot more sense because Indian independence was like pretty much bang on the end of the war, wasn't it? It was very quickly afterwards. Yeah. Um, by the end of the 40s, that whole region had been carved up and sorted. Mm. I was thinking Bangladesh. 
the Bangladesh Liberation. I was thinking of the Bangladesh Liberation War, so ignore that. That was a uh, 71. I tried. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit about the training of the um, of this martial art for a bit, just to just to just get an idea of what a kind of what martial art that focuses on this kind of thing actually does. Yeah. And um, late afterwards, I'll talk about why touch death is different. That it, it, it's very, it's probably based off this. Different from a training perspective. Um, from a just, from just pressure points. Uh, combat. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Their training was divi- was divided into three main disciplines. So you had uh, locks and grips, uh, strikes and blocks, and nerve point attacks. Cool. So basically, you had the first type, which the so locks and grips were you were done with using uh, hands, legs, or heads. You had your strikes, which were about eighteen types of strikes and seven different blocks. Uh, and then you had the last one, which um, used the nerve point attacks uh, used to inflict pain and uh, cause serious injury. Nasty. Like the next, like one of the later stages is um, a hand fighting technique, which. Um, where a student basically is taught to observe weaknesses of an opponent and um, attack weak points and like slowly get experience and where to hit because they have to hit a, a nerve and a moving target. Right. So yeah, and it included like 64 types of weapons, including 32 types of swords, um, etc. And like the highest level, would, the higher level attacks would uh, involve a nervous system and... Supposedly, if executed properly, it could halt the blood flow to vital organs uh, to cause paralysis or death. That's very specific. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's specific enough to hit, like, nerves, I guess it's not too far-fetched. <laughs> <laughs> like, you've got aiming for those. Yeah. I couldn't aim for a nerve. True, nerves are sort of very thin. I do, yeah. So I don't know what nerves are. And alongside this, they, do, they also learn a alternative one, uh, which... Uh, does the reverse effect of the strikes. Right. Which is some super anime shit. <laughs> Which we'll get onto in a bit, actually. Do you love my anime? Um, yeah, like this, okay, so this uh, martial art is actually designed to kill. Although it's, uh, pra- people who practice it are taught to maintain complete discipline, if possible. Which is quite common. Yeah. And I'll jump to the last bit. The touch of death. Touch of death. Mm-hmm. Sounds cool. Yeah. Sounds like a film. Yeah. Also known as Dim as Dim Mac, <laughs> which translates to press artery. Uh, yeah. It's basically it refers to any martial arts technique which um, is said to kill using seemingly less than lethal force, uh, which targets specific specific areas. Um, so you can already see how this is from sounds exactly the same before. Yeah. Like, but there is. Yeah, I see where this is going. Yeah. Uh, but there are like differences. But it's still pretty definitely tied to all that easily. <laughs> like you hear about it a lot in the uh, Wuxia. Um, I don't know if that's pronounced right, but it's spelled W U X I A. I couldn't uh, genre, say <laughs> genre of martial arts fiction and stuff, which is basically um, just the martial hero kind of thing, where some where like a low caste person that's been that basically trained for years to overthrow someone etc or help people what what that kind of thing they usually using martial arts or some kind of i think like a jet Li film jet Li did make many films yeah, and there were a lot of them were like this <laughs> i believe hero was one of them yeah normally it's uh, seen as a 
as techniques to attack pressure points, and also meridians, which are said to um, incapacitate or sometimes cause immediate or delayed death. And, and meridians are basically um, like pressure points. With, like, think of... Um, have you ever seen, like, alternative medicine charts where it's got, like, lines going through the body and stuff? Yeah, the, I've seen uh, all that. Um, it's, meant, it's meant to be like, like a flow of uh, life energy f- uh, for, a pers- for each person, essentially. Yep. Um, I'm with you. Yeah. And um, it said that some martial arts in that are more spiritual, uh, less it's less common nowadays, would uh, teach that you could uh, focus this life energy to do some to do somewhat superhuman esque things. Like some of these would be based off real things. Like uh, monks would, um, like one way monks would train. In I think it was Qigong. I think it was King Gong. Um, type of martial arts where they basically uh, have up a plank on a, on, on a slope against the wall and they have to run up it and each time they'd make it slightly higher until they could run nearly vertical. These are the guys like headbutting the slates and whatever aren't they? Like the yeah. sort of karate chopping bricks and things right? Like that's the kind of thing yeah. we're talking about the sort of thing that you see in films but you're not sure if that really happens. Yeah. I mean yeah. A lot of them are do actually really happen though. Just um, less... Glamorized. Yeah, it had to be based on some kind of fact, even yeah. if it got sensationalized by Hollywood. Like, have you seen? Have you ever seen martial arts videos? They're crazy sometimes. Like, but yeah, I just have a soft spot for martial arts shows and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, basically, um, it kind of combines attack, like attacking like these pressure points and attacking points of life and of life flow to disrupt that, almost like a magical aspect. Supernatural. I don't um, know this the word. Almost yes. I was, I was just trying to reword it in a way that made more sense to people, but I'm not sure if that works. It's not magic, but it's... Beyond the realms of normal reality. Think like a Hadouken. That would be a type of it. Where you focus, where you focus into your hands and fire out. Hadouken! Like, yeah, or a Kamehameha from like Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> now, there's little scientific or historical evidence uh, that this exists. I think saying little is being generous. Yeah. I say little, like little, probably. Um, it like it probably refers to these other martial arts that use pressure points as a focus, but in part of it. But um, like this is different because it's meant to be like unreasonable. In I, I will say that in my personal experience, alternative medicine, I it's not always off the mark. Uh, I know I had. Um, hmm. um, my grandmother swears by acupuncture. I said earlier, horses benefit from acupuncture. So sometimes this kind of holistic alternative approach to the way the body works has some, not necessarily basis in fact, but there's enough clinical evidence that there's something there, maybe. Yeah. Like uh, like I said, I don't really know. I don't really buy into it, but I don't know. I'm not going to say I'm right, because I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> I honestly don't know what I'm talking about like I said I would suspect even if it's not all kind of accurate and correct that I think by chance the people playing with this are happening happening to tap into something that is real that is related perhaps perhaps mm. not not the kind of magical force they think it is perhaps not as strong as they think it is but it may still have some yeah. loose connection yeah um, like I've, I've seen it a few times where it's less uh, the, Find as a pseudoscience than a proto science. 
Uh, so it's like a lead up to modern science, uh, like scientific things. Kind of simplified understanding of the way things work. Um, but still, I'm not going to go more into that because, like I said, at this point, I am bullshitting <laughs> and I have no idea what I'm saying. And also, my beer is empty. Like it's been, like it has been confirmed that trauma to certain parts of the body can um, cause this. To quote, disproportionately catastrophic con- consequences, which is a great phrase, <laughs> when applied to known pressure points under circumstances, like uh, commotio cordis, which is like a, a medical thing, which is a lethal disruption of the heart rhythm uh, as a result of a blow to a blow directly over the heart, uh, which can uh, at a certain time of the heartbeat, which can cause cardiac arrest, and um, on top of that, like I think it's the carotid artery I might be lying about that one I'm pretty sure it's the carotid artery it was the stomach nine point which which came up I don't know enough to contradict you yeah well I go, it came up as stomach nine point and I think that went to the carrot a nerve in the carotid artery uh, which hit which hitting that causes um, like I think it's lightheadedness and dizziness but it's not but it's not un- unthought of that um it can be lethal if it knocks plaque loose and goes straight to the brain. Okay. Part of which is theorizes part of why um, the touch of death is a is said to have a delayed effect. Sometimes, I think my I think my favorite reference to it was um, I've only seen a clip of it. I think it's in the I think it was the Men Who Stare at Goats. I can't remember now where the guy is like. Um, I got hit. By, I got hit by a touch of death once, uh, it, but um, it will be like in eighteen years. <laughs> Sounds like the sort of thing that went with that <laughs> film. It's like I've not actually seen it apart from like certain little clips. But I just thought that was a great line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like a touch of death. Um, like the main, like the main famous one concert was known as the vibrating palm. Uh, where you, where you, where you, where the person practicing would be able to make their make their palm vibrate at, and focus their key energy and um and into a type of force, uh, so uh, said to be a technique that's part psychic and part vibratory. People will believe um, anything, and this energy is then focused into a wave. Now it got this name of the death death touch. Yeah. Uh, on Dimmak as um, it's good. like a lot of new martial arts uh, claim to practice it in reality and stuff um, but, uh, but really the beginning of this was in the 1960s where the term Dimmak was advertised next to a translation the, the death touch yep. uh, by an um, American eccentric Count Dante who was born John Timothy Kehan <laughs> In Chicago, Illinois. Right. <laughs> I mean, he didn't... I, I don't get it. You change your name here if it sounds offensive in some way. Like, the, d- the royal family ditched mm. the German surname. Yeah. What's the benefit here? Yeah, I mean, you can, see the, you can see the flyer for the um, thing on... Maybe just Google it, or... Uh, there's, like, a bad quality version on Wikipedia. Um, with, with text that reads... Black Dragon Fighting Society brings you the forbidden secrets of Dim Mac, the death touch in this exclusive book. That's a film I'd see. Yeah. I actually I actually 
found why he was why he changed his name. So um, yeah, he was born in thirty nine, and then um, in sixty seven he changed he legally changed his name from uh, from Kihan to Count Juan Rafael Dante. <laughs> Uh, basically explaining that the name change uh, was due to his parents fleeing Spain during the Civil War and changing their names to hide their noble heritage and hide in America. Despite the surname of Dante being Italian in origin, mm-hmm. keep, it's, like, it's not certain, but it's worth noting that um, Count Dante's was the protagonist of um, Dumas's uh, The Count of Monte Cristo from 1844. Yep, she was. <laughs> and he was... Also known for boasting a lot to Favre's reputation with um, what with the most fame with one of the most uh, notorious ones uh, being that he'd participate in secret death matches. And she presumably always won, given he was still alive. Yep, in Thailand and China, winning by killing opponent after opponent uh, in front of crowds numbering in thousands. <sighs> Someone else would have written about it if it was that many. Yeah, and. Then he began heavily promoting himself in uh, comic book ads as the deadliest man alive. This film I would watch. Yep. And all you needed to do to to learn from this deadliest man alive, do you want to guess? Watch all his films? No. He only had to mail uh, mail order for his instructional booklet uh, called World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets. That is a guy that knows his audience, knows how to milk that money. Yep. And it also received a free Black Dragon Fighting Society membership card for it. So yeah, like these comic book ads are basically are, are a lot of the reason that he's that he has so, such lasting fi- uh, like fame. Um, and I've actually got what he read. Actually, yeah, like, yep. let's, let's hear it. Cool. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Anytime I put emphasis on it, it's in all caps. Okay. Right. So yes, this is the deadliest. And most terrifying uh, fighting art known to man, and without equal, <laughs> it's maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, paralyzing, and crippling <laughs> techniques are, are known by only a few people in the world. An expert at Dimmak uh, could easily kill many judo, karate, kung fu, aikido, uh, aikido, aikido, and, yep, aikido. And gung through experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poisoned hand weapons. Instructing you step by step through each move in this manual is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived. He's got a good name for being evil. <laughs> it's such a good advert. You'll struggle to beat Count Dante on the evil count. I mean, I would remember that advert. Fucking. Okay. <laughs> like. It's such a ridiculous advert. I love it. Um, also, I, one of my favorite things from the Wikipedia page about them was that they had to, that they had to mention that the Black Dragon Fighting Society, founded by Count Dante, is a is an American martial arts organization and has no connection with and should not be confused with the Japanese Black Dragon Society. Which is an ultra nationalist, uh, which is an ultra nationalist secret society during the nineteen thirties and forties. You do not want to get those confused. <laughs> yes. So um, even Wikipedia thought is important. <laughs> so please don't do this. <laughs> in nineteen eighty-five, an article in Black Belt magazine speculated that the death of Bruce Lee in seventy-three 
might have been caused by, quote, a delayed re- reaction to a dim max strike received several weeks prior to his collapse. And other authors have also said that his death may have been due to a quivering palm technique. Uh, well, at least one of these was alongside an article about Kai Li Fo, who was an instructor of another martial art, to the effect that Dim Mac, you know, basically, which basically said that Dim Mac does actually exist and is taught to a few select Kung Fu practitioners. Um, and it's like with one book uh, calling Dim Mac one of the secret specialities of Wing Chun. <laughs> Um, though it's not identified in uh, any Wing Chun kind of things, so <laughs> someone could have just said it. <laughs> but yeah, and then like in the nineteen nineties, uh, karate instructor George Dillman uh, developed a style uh, that involved um, pressure point fighting, uh, which he identified with Dim Mac, going so far as to claim that he developed key based attacks that work without physical contact. <laughs> No touch knockout techniques. I yeah. I I just be able to like kind of go like I just kind of punched and left a couple centimeters from my face, but I just then I realized that they can't see anything, <laughs> so um, I tried. <laughs> but yeah, of course, this claim didn't stand up to third party investigation, and was denounced as fraudulent. Anyway, just finish up. It's um. Yeah, uh, it's in a lot of media and stuff, like I said. Like, yeah, I'd, um, I'd heard of it numerous times before we brought this up. Yeah, like in what's it, in like um, Planned White Lotus and Kill Bill Volume 2, um, a five-point palm exploding harp technique appears with a delayed action, um, which is shown as uh, the victim takes a, num- uh, a certain number of steps before dying. And like my favorite, my favorite example of it was uh, from Fist North Star, around a fictional martial arts school called Hokuto Shinkan, which is about yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, pressure points, uh, which used to kill like kill opponent stuff, and is with the famous line of um, after he hits someone, "Oh my, one more or you're already dead," and then and then like they explode or something. <laughs> a lot of old films and had exploding things. It's dumb, like. He like touches the thumb to his forehead and the guy's head explodes. Standard. Yeah. But yeah, like in the West, you got stuff like Kung Fu Panda with the uh, what's it called with the Wushi finger hold. Yep. And um, you have uh, Tai Li's uh, fighting style in the last Airbender series, um, probably in the movie as well. But we don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, and fine. And my favorite Western example, Blood Sports. I do know Blood uh, Sports. Yeah, with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. It's good. I like it. Yeah, uh, which uh, it's referenced in that as the um, other description of his title, of his uh, profession. Go for it. Uh, where he's, where he plays Frank Ducks, the founder of the first neo ninja school of American style ninjutsu. <laughs> Gotta love them um, ninjas. Yeah, where he, where he gets entry to a full contact death match. Uh, tournament by striking a stack of five bricks with his hand and only breaking the bottom one. Right. Yeah. And just fun. Uh, there's also the monk class in D and D that has a quivering palm attack. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I think that's everything. That was a lot of information, and yeah, so I jumped around a lot. Um, I hope that was all right. I certainly very densely packed information. Yeah, I I didn't think I didn't realize how much that would like. 
come through. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. More is better than too little. Uh, we'll cut to music and come back. And we are back. So, Rich, what do you have to tell me? We're doing exploitation cinema. Excellent. I don't really know what I'm going for, so I know the basics, but... I, I think I alluded earlier, you will probably know some exploitation cinema without realising it. Okay. So, exploitation cinema is... It's a, it's a genre of film, but it's more like a... It's like a style, like various genres can be fall under the umbrella of exploitation. I would describe exploitation cinema as films that exploit a gap in the market. Okay. So if there's something out there that people like or enjoy, they'll capitalise, they'll spot it. So they're often very lurid, very violent, very colourful. They're, they're films that they're not made for artistic merit and they cannot sell themselves on brand or reputation, so they would have to be able to sell themselves based on the content of, say, a poster or a trailer, something that in, like, five minutes you would go, yeah, I want to see that. It evolved out of, if we're going to take it down a notch, really early porn. Because when porn first started in the 1940s, it was illegal. You couldn't make porn. So this makes sense to get porn past uh, Hollywood censors in America is even more conservative than us, especially in the 1940s. What they would do was they would make educational tales. So they would do a film that was like the man, the married man, the nice married man and the, the danger of the, the heart that would seize the man's soul and ruin his married life for uh, they would do films about sexually transmitted diseases because even if that was disgusting and creepy and horrible, it at least meant they got to put sex on the screen, which drew people in. Yeah. And the trailers would promote it as, oh, it'll be all gruesome and horrible, but they'd also find a way in the trailer to remind you, but there'll be some sex. And that, yeah, that exploited this market, this desire for sex, the exploited the audience. If you looked at the, uh, the genre, really peaked in the sort of 60s and especially the 70s. I'd say slasher horror was a big part of it, the kind of violent horror genre. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. You heard of Snuff? I've heard, I don't really know it. Snuff is a movie that when it came out, they managed to convince a lot of people in the press that the people that died in this horror film were actually people on death row that the US government had donated as people who were going to die anyway, so they killed them on screen. Okay. Yeah, it rings a bell now. Where people were referred to a snuff movie, the idea is it's a movie where the deaths on screen are real, but it came from this film called Snuff mm. uh, that spread this idea. Often these films, the they'd be advertised as if they were sort of documentaries. They, they would imply heavily they were real. They wouldn't acknowledge they were fake. Yeah, so uh, I've... It, it peaked with Cannibal Holocaust. That was my first. Great name. That was great, what I was gonna... great name, right? Cannibal Holocaust. Do you, this, do you hear that? I if you if you're the sort of person that likes those kind of movies, you go yeah. Yeah, it's like oh man, I uh, that was the one I was going to mention next. I think. Are you familiar with what the cast did after it came out? I don't know what happened after it came out. But I know I know, I know during. Okay, so after it came out, the director got the cast to make themselves disappear for a while. 
they kind of went underground. Okay, it was after then. I thought it was, I thought it was during for a bit. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, it was after production ended. They kind of went into hiding. And this yeah. was the 70s, so pre-internet, pre-mobile phone. It's quite easy to disappear. Uh, all the trailers presented it as a real film with real people that went to study this cannibal group and got killed. And eventually... <laughs> The director got arrested for murder because he was kind of accused of being responsible for these people disappearing and he, he had to try and sort of seek them out and get them to come out of hiding when yeah. they were sort of refusing to acknowledge they existed. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it's it's like, uh, yeah, see, I was thinking that during the filming rather than after. I think during was when they sort of went yeah. underground. Yeah. And, but it was afterwards when people tried to find them, they still wouldn't show up. No, it's, it's you're right. I, I like... Now that you said it, I'm just like, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these films are very lurid, very sort of garish, very violent. Uh, I'd say the Nightmare on Elm Street films are exploitation in a kind of slash away. They tend to focus on mm. big cliche stereotypes. So women's prisons, stuff with Nazis is big. Um, faces of Death was one. Yeah, Faces of Death. Uh, in terms of big, occasionally the exploitation B-movie thing, because they kind of, they were all kind of B-movies, can tr- cross over. So the, the original Mad Max is basically an exploitation mm. film. Ultra low budget, very cheap. Can, it's basically it, a, would Kung Fury be one? Some of the more recent ones? Kung Fury... Like, uh, I guess that's a recent one. Right? I'd, I'd describe that as like a homage to sort of 80s action films. Oh, but, yeah, that, but, right. but that incorporates yeah. enormous elements of the, the exploitation film. All the Hitler stuff that Kung Fury has... Uh, is very in that vein, and it and it, and it exploits eighties nostalgia. Yeah, it's it's exploitation in a modern sense. Mm. And I, yeah, the Wolfenstein series as well. Don't yeah, it? actually, yeah, that's a really good point. I and I I think that's the thing. I think exploitation cinema now is very built around uh, the kind of current iteration is very built around looking at the past. So Kung Fury is a good example. Uh, all the films made by the Asylum, yeah, the mockbuster like Sharknado stuff. All that is very. They, you asylum movies you kind of want to see them based on if you find the poster funny yeah like the instant you see there's a film out there called Shark Exorcist you're either in the camp that want to see Shark Exorcist or you're in the camp that just goes no that looks crap yeah uh, and like Ghost Shark Zombievers uh, I think Piranaconda yeah like they're films that sell themselves before you go I quite like the older ones because the the seventies ones and the sixties ones were very creative. They would find more interesting ways to sell themselves. So I've watched quite a few of these, and a lot of them I've just seen the trailers for. Because to be honest, they're not that good. <laughs> the whole film, like the trailer, gives away most of it. Yeah. And I quite often the the way they'd portray themselves. I said before with like Cannibal Holocaust, they portrayed it as real. Yeah. So sometimes I've they one, sometimes yeah. they'd kind of be they'd kind of go for an angle of there was ones that would say this film is about really depraved behavior and when you went to see it everyone who went would get given a little card where they could vote was the were the was the behaviors of the people on the screen sinful or not and they'd have them at the end to decide and they'd and in the kind of promotion of the film they would suggest that you would actually have an impact on would these people be convicted <laughs> uh i've seen one that has a a kind of thing beforehand where it says Everyone who goes to see this film will be given a terror mask. Because the film is so scary, you may need to hide behind the mask should the content be too scary. And there was another one that advertised like a bell. Like a bell will ring before any scary scene in case you need to hide. Uh, it sounds like some paranormal activity thing. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The content was never actually that scary. It yeah. was just about making you think it would be. Once they got your ticket money, they didn't really care that you'd be disappointed afterwards. Mm. 
Quentin Tarantino is an interesting character in this frame. Yeah, I, I, I'm never sure what to say about Quentin Tarantino ever. Just because, what is Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> he was born and raised on exploitation cinema, and yet somehow all his films through his lens are seen as these kind of ultra sophisticated really intelligent films analyzed by film students and film grads but actually basically he's just rooted in really sleazy schlocky trash yeah that's really what he loves is that kind of stuff um you see it in from dust till dawn which he wrote and started that that that's really just a sort of crap vampire film mm. i was thinking pulp fiction it's got a lot of elements in there like buried in there yeah. like like has a lot like when it's put together it's done it goes together really well i like i love i really enjoyed the film you, you think but when that... you think about the separate scenes just like huh yeah you, you think of <laughs> you know that scene with the uh, the girl talking about the film she's gonna star in yeah um like that sounds really trashy right like yeah oh it's this me this guy this sword and whatever mm. um and do you know what that film is no you know the scene i'm on about right no oh there's this this bit where the where the the black-haired actress is sort of chatting about this film she's going to star in yeah and if you actually go back and listen to the plot it's kill bill oh shit! it's like five six years before kill bill came out yeah she just chaps through the plot as like a (laughs) as like kind of casual scene but that's thing kill bill that kind of ultra violence um, yes. is is very much in the exploitation zone. I definitely put at least Kill Bill Volume Two as one. Yeah, because oh boy, for me, not a good film. <laughs> uh, but again, it's a sequel, right? Like you kind of knew what you were kind of getting into, and you were kind of stuck with it. You'd sort of committed once you've seen the first. Any one. scene with the uh, Chinese sensei guy, <laughs> he just kind of flicks his beard around anytime he says something. Yeah, it's, and I th- there's a dramatic. <sighs> I think you said earlier Black Dynamite, didn't you? Well, black exploitation, which is the one of the bigger subgenres of exploitation film, yeah. which it kind of exploited the market of um, the black audience of America's desire for movies that starred black people. There were none, yeah. so they just made really crap films where black people beat up white people and they knew it'd sell. Yeah, Bollywood. It was probably the same kind of budget. They were low budget films. They weren't. They didn't have a big production value at the time, like they do now. But when they like back then. I don't know. I, I have no idea, honestly. I, I just assumed it was always really big in India. I, yeah, but I think in the, if you go back to, say, the 70s, India was not I mean, uh, not the kind of economic powerhouse it is today. I mean, they do definitely capitalise on Hollywood, like, straight up, every time. There's all these kind of Bollywood parodies my, or whatever. My, one of like, my favourite things ever is Bollywood parodies, because I remember when I was, like, 12, I watched... It was, I think that's the first time I saw one, and it was... Um, it, was just a, it was just a rip off a screen... <laughs> But instead of a screen mask, he just wore a, cl- uh, a, a typical clown mask that you could find anywhere. Yeah, but it it was easy to sell. Yeah, it it was the exact same plot. It was just scream. Yeah, um, Tarant- the whole Tarantino thing we mentioned peaked with uh, Grindhouse. You ever come across Grindhouse? I know of Grindhouse. Um, I don't. So Grindhouse was originally the term for the cinemas that these things aired in. Film uh, exploitation films aired in grindhouse cinemas, which were cheap cinemas, and the terms have kind of become the same thing. Mm. So Tarantino and his best friend Robert Rodriguez each directed a short-ish film, and they released them as a double feature under the name Grindhouse. Planet Terror was Rodriguez's contribution. Tarantino did Death Proof, uh, yeah, okay. and they released. 
sort of abridged versions of each film. They intentionally chopped half an hour out so that the editing was dodgy and the plot barely held together. Mm. And uh, one of the cool features of that, which is why if you've got an interest in Grindhouse Cinema, it's a really, or exploitation, it's a good place to start, is when they aired it in cinemas, in between the films, they had a bunch of trailers that they had filmed specifically for the release that didn't exist. They were films that weren't real. They just got some of their best friends. They got Rob Zombie. Um, they got, is it Eli Roth? Something Roth. They got yeah, like Eli, a bunch. They got a bunch of these guys to direct a short trailer for a movie that didn't exist. So Rob Zombie's one was uh, She Werewolves of the SS, I think. And Eli Roth was. Uh, it was a film called Don't. That was built around the trailer was just like don't open the door, don't go down there, don't open the stairs. Like a very simple, again, an easy to sell. Remind me thing. on YouTube, it's like the um, this the slow spoon killer. Yeah, or something like that, where, he, where the guy just keeps following someone around with a spoon, tapping them until they die. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, the the best one out of that was Rodriguez directed a trailer for Machete, which he then turned into a film. Mm. But when he directed the trailer, the film didn't exist. <laughs> it was just a kind of idea. Um, but exploitation cinema is a really interesting dark area because there's yeah there's the black exploitation stuff, there's the Nazi stuff. It covers a lot of really dark topics other places won't, but makes fun of them. It's quite light with it because the whole it's very entertainment orientated. Yeah. Um, and sometimes these things kind of can turn into yeah they can turn into more like um, we mentioned Robert Rodriguez his first film El Mariachi was it was made for $5,000 and it made kind of $150,000 or something it made a vast amount compared to the cost yeah Um, and that rolled into yeah him being successful I I think that's the interesting thing with it that it's it often relies on creative filmmaking. Um, yeah, making you, you, you kind of look at what you've yeah. got, what you've got to hand, what you can afford, and make a film out of it. Yeah. Blair Witch is... Uh, well, Blair Witch... It's not... I wouldn't call it Grindhouse, but... I mean, I wouldn't call it um, Exploitation, but it's... But when you said uh, a film that films that used little money for and made something amazing out of it... I would say Blair Witch's marketing was yeah. where it was killer. Oh, boy, yeah. Because the, they had uh, the Cannibal Holocaust thing. They took it further. They had all the actors, their characters used the actors' real names, and they made MySpace profiles. So they'd have, like, blogs saying, oh, we're going off into the forest now, and mm. then they stopped posting. It was very much the same thing. and it was. It's now seen as the first use of kind of the internet for viral marketing was Blair Witch. So yeah. it's a really interesting one to pick up on, that it kind of... It was a a very modern take on the the same idea that as you say it didn't have there was no money you don't see anything it's just like shaky camera footage yeah the skill of Blair Witch was the marketing they convinced people to go and see it because if you look at the amount it made at the box office it's astonishing for what the product was which mm. I mean to be honest anyone could make a film where you shake a camera in a forest and say ah there's a monster yeah it's become a lot it's a lot like it's an entire genre of horror now, found footage. Yeah, found footage is, is which is nice. great for the people that make them because they are so cheap. It's interesting, especially now because you know Amazon have got into filmmaking. Obviously, Amazon Originals. One of the earliest films that Amazon produced was a film called oh, I can't remember what its name. It was about dinosaurs. A film about dinosaurs, and it was before Amazon had even used the Amazon Originals term. It was made by Love Film, which mm. was owned by Amazon. I remember Love Film. Yeah. And they did this film about dinosaurs that was just a found footage thing about this kid that went off to some 
dinosaur lake or something um and again you know that that's amazon one of the biggest companies in the world chose to launch their platform of making original films mm. with a found footage movie because it was a really affordable way to, to do it yeah i like if you think about it it's actually quite a shady way of doing business it's a lot of fun um yeah. it's a genre that i also feel it gets disrespected but actually i feel every now and then one of these things breaks through like yeah um, i mean to be fair like to make a great baseline for for some films i'd i'd say there's no real difference between exploitation cinema and kind of for me b-movie action films are very similar but like every now and then those go to a-list like i'd yeah. say the expendables those things if you looked at the posters they they kind of said these are the actors in it you want to see they literally would yeah. list the cast and say the ultimate action movie they wouldn't bother yeah. to tell you what the content was they just go you got stallone and schwarzenegger you're gonna go see this right and that, and that was it yeah to be fair most action films do that yeah, it's a genre that's kind of built out of that to an extent, but The Expendables just kind of highlighted the oh, fact yeah. that you didn't even care. Like, at least Predator was like, it's Arnie, but there's this thing called the Predator. Like, yeah. or they or Commando, it's Arnie and he's a Commando. With The Expendables, they just said, look, you know who these guys are, you know what they do, just you're going to go see <laughs> it, right? Just, just, just do it, just get on with it, Pretty just, just go. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only actor who's got the same kind of skill set now is The Rock that people kind of go see movies of the rock and because he's the rock but but i'd say the fast and furious movies are a very similar thing that you know that they're dumb you know they're stupid you know, I adore those films. but you'll love them that's the yeah. thing but you know that the action sequences are going to be really silly like you know there's going to be people like flying through the air and landing in just the right spot you know that they're going to jump off uh, a hill on that on that car and it'll land where it should but you don't care mm. and and you don't need to expect and and you know that each one will it will fill that exploitation niche by providing exactly what the previous film did. Like, they get bigger and sillier, but they basically offer you the same product that you've yeah. received now eight times. Yeah. It's like some faces of death and stuff. People knew what, like, they knew what they were trying to sell. They were trying to sell a snuff film yeah. that, was, that wasn't actually a snuff film. If you look like, at martial arts, my favourite ones are... <laughs> I love the names of these, these things. Bruce Sploitation. Oh man! Exploitation of Bruce Lee. Um, there are hundreds of movies starring guys whose name is Bruce Lee that is just spelled slightly differently, like Bruce Lee with an L I, or like Bruce <laughs> yeah. Lee with an L E. Um, and it oh. peaked to this movie called Clones of Bruce Lee, a movie about how this person cloned Bruce Lee, and it's got these ten Bruce Lees, it's like a sort of Bruce army, and they definitely just picked like that skinny Chinese people and just said, "Oh yeah, he's basically Bruce." <laughs> Have you seen uh, the Unbreakable Commission? I don't think so. Because there's one, there's like there's one scene, well, one part in it where like one of the one of the characters is uh, trying to get a, a role in a Spider-Man film called Too Many Spider-Mans. <laughs> <It's definitely laughs> and there's like te- and there's like ten Spider-Man jumping at each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely playing on the same premise, isn't yeah. it? Like it's definitely doing the same, yeah, toying with the same idea. Mm. There's um, it's. And it, and yeah, we we mentioned Mad Max before. I mean, the new Mad Max Fury Road was yeah. not that long ago. Like it might, it's not really an exploitation thing anymore, but it still it shows mm. that the medium has a. Yeah, you find a lot with a lot of the exploitation films. I you find that um, they also research shit. Like if you watch any like eighties, seventies exploitation film, you can tell that half the directors have never spoken to a black person before. <laughs> 
That sounds right with the black exploitation stuff. Like you get the feeling the cast didn't have any contribution on the script. You'd get a whole like that entire like I'm trying to word things, but I can't. I mean, I think it's still the case now that it's a that that um it's it's almost the way the genre is built that quality control isn't form a part of it. Like um, when the Asylum make their mockbusters. Now the Asylum is best known for Sharknado. Yes, but um, what so they five of them now. Yeah, but what they also do is. They make films that are linked to blockbusters that are out. Mm. And what they do with those is the instant they get the title and maybe even the first trailer, they start filming the rest of it so that the week that the film comes out in cinemas, they've got their version out on DVD. So um, they often genuinely don't resemble the film they're ripping off because they haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, Like um, Transmorphers, Atlantic Rim... Triassic World um, they all came out like the same week so they didn't, there was no opportunity to and sometimes the names are close enough to convince people like Atlantic Rim the box art is quite nondescript I feel like, I mean, yeah, like Pacific Rim isn't an iconic enough film that like if you saw something saying that you might go oh maybe I've got the name wrong yeah it's like I mean too fair I don't know I, I was pretty old by the time I could tell the difference between the Atlantic and Pacific <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the, the, you know, unless you're like an oceanographer, my I, my favorite or, or, or one of the I, clever I, maybe ones. Maybe a geologist. I don't know my fucking geography. No, no, it's no one does. What one of the clever ones was they did a Sherlock Holmes one around the time that the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies came out. Mm. So that's a bit cleverer because obviously they can literally call it Sherlock Holmes, um, except for in their version, Sherlock Holmes he fights. A robot dinosaur and Iron Man, and it ends with him fighting a robot dragon that's trying to set fire to the Houses of Parliament, and he's in a hot air balloon with a machine gun mm. chasing it. And it again, it's it's fun, right? Like you hear all that, you go, "Yeah, I want to see that." You, you'll be disappointed when you do, but you yeah. but you have this urge to investigate, nonetheless. Mm. Like it's, it's unavoidable. Um, I don't really know how I got into. it. I guess it was. Um, there's a film company I like called Full Moon. Full Moon make movies about uh, sort of their their big franchise was this film franchise called Puppet Master. Yeah, yeah their avenue of exploitation was um, it, they were these lurid, violent horror movies that they would sell you on these trailers that suggested it would be kind of sort of gory and violent. But actually, what they really wanted you to do was buy the merchandise because mm. cute little dolls they could sell. Yeah, as uh, as as take home merchandise. Mm-hmm. That that's the thing that it always, uh, whatever you do with exploitation cinema, it always comes back to how can we kind of make dollar out of it. Um, if you actually look at a lot of horror films, they're often made on a low budget. So, oh yeah, uh, especially the, in the 80s. Yeah, if you look at um, well, because seventies, because that's like it was a peak like of. Slashes and yeah, um, yeah. Friday the Thirteenth. You had yeah, Elm Street. You had Hellraiser. Um, there's debate over if Alien is horror or not, but again, it did the same that like the it's, Alien trailer suggested. Oh, like, there's this Alien, this is monster, but you actually you don't really see it. Alien is a horror film. It's also a sci-fi. Film. You can have both. Like, but but they often. F- Two talk, things but but the, there's often this emphasis on like you don't really get to see it. Like it's they more of a horror film than a sci-fi film for me. Because it's a slow burner. It's... And I think if you're a sci-fi fan, you might not enjoy it. Whereas if you're a horror fan, you will. 
in terms of who would be satisfied by it, who would find like, it pleasing. I because my favorite type of horror film is a slow burner where it's over the course of the entire film, like there's something in the background. Yeah, you have the thing. You yeah. have um, in the mouth of madness. You have Event Horizon. Event yeah, Horizon is a bit more extreme. It's close to Hellraiser, actually. And also, Alien has the endless sequels, which we've already kind of highlighted. Like yeah. the exploitation genre, there's a big emphasis on follow-ups, sequels, things where you buy it just because you've liked the first one. Uh, I would call Alien as much the horror film as the first Hellraiser film. That's a big bold statement. I would, easily. <laughs> Hellraiser has more sequels, so it t- ties into my idea more. There's like ten Hellraiser movies at this point. And I, know I think Hel- it's nine. I know that Hellraiser has reached the point where, uh, and this is a real good example of kind of the whole exploitation thing, if a director comes, or a writer rather, comes to the studio with a script, they will say, this sounds like a good script, we'll just put Pinhead in it, and then we'll make it. And most Hellraiser films, like or most of them more, like the last three or four, were not, Hellraiser movies when they were submitted they just said oh, no, we'll make the tell. whole same film and just put this guy in it and it'll make more money you can I tell because, be the same. Um, I think it was Hellraiser 8 which is called Dead World um, is, that, is that the video game one? yes it's the one where they where these where the, play, where the players from an uh, online video game get invited to a party uh, and then they realise that the part like that the party's actually like a hellscape that's been engineered for them <laughs> So that, that and could, it's like, but everyone, like all the guests are all masked and stuff, and they kind of realise what's going on. See, that could be any film. It didn't exactly. need to be Hellraiser. It's the most generic thing ever. It, with with Alien, the I'd thing say is, where... you know the best thing about it, best yeah. part of it is in the whole film, Pinhead isn't even re- is is being faked by a random dude. So, and then he shows up at the end to punch a dude that designed it all for two minutes. <laughs> If that no thirty seconds maybe that, that it shows his face. You, you, you've hit on again. For someone who says they don't know the genre, you've accidentally hit on another feature of the genre, which is putting the big star in it for a minute because you can promote that they're in it. So mm. you mentioned earlier Planet Terror. Yeah. Um, Bruce Willis is in it very briefly. Mm. Um, if you watch the trailer or look at the posters, he's the lead actor. I just thought of one as well. Yeah. Machete. Yeah. Because I love Machete. <laughs> machete, don't tweet. Um, yeah, Machete, again, it's the same kind of thing. Like, uh, I mean, Danny Trejo is like, a, an actor designed for exploitation it's films. essentially Danny, Danny Trejo exploitation. Yeah, he, he, yeah, it's playing the character. He's like a rip-off of himself. Trejo exploitation. <laughs> I don't think he minds, though. Danny Trejo knows what he's doing. He knows that whenever Rodriguez does a movie, he'll be the same character in I mean, the same movie. You're, it's at the point where... I, I was watching, I can't. I think I was watching wrestling or something like that, and it was because I like while I was working, because um, like having something on the in the side. And Danny Trejo was in the crowd, and they were like, "Oh, it's Machete! Machete's here!" And I was like, "Okay, now at this point, Machete's it's almost his real name." <laughs> Do you know the first film that he appears Machete in? Spy Kids. Yes, the man knows his trivia. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's canon that he's the same character. <laughs> just about, just about. Like he just looks after some kids for a bit. Apparently, <laughs> it's um, it's it's a uh, it's a weird genre like that. The whole again, the whole capitalize on celebrity thing. It'd be like we've got the budget for one of the, for this guy for like a minute, mm. but we can make bank out of this. Yeah. Um, even some weird things like um. Oh, fuck, 
fucking John Bon Jovi was in like a Western movie in the early nineties, and he did like a song for the soundtrack. Um, it's one of the big Bon Jovi songs. Is it Blaze of Glory or is I don't know. I think, I have no idea. Yeah, um, he's in the film for like a sort of thirty seconds, and even he complained because he said they were promoting this film being like the the debut of John Bon Jovi, and he said I'm really sick of doing interviews where these interviews ask me what's your new movie about, and I go I don't really know because I'm barely <laughs> in it, and yeah, he felt kind of obliged to them to pretend he had a clue, but he, he really didn't. Yeah. Um, it's. Oh, man. It's like putting Bono in, in anything. Yeah. Because he's everywhere and it pisses me off. I'd say a lot of the black exploitation films use James Brown for the soundtrack because he mm. was cheap. Yeah. Like, he he turns up a lot. Like, he didn't do the big ones like Shaft, but he did all the others. Mm. Like, and in the 90s, you'd have them put rappers in everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's like, people watch this, it's got a rapper in it. Exactly. And, and also a lot of rappers wanted to rappers wanted to break out into Hollywood, and mm. so they'd do yeah. anything. Pretty much. Well, sorry, I was just segueing to that because I just I've just been watching a lot of that kind of stuff and listening right. back on music recently. So, um, watch documentaries. <laughs> I, it's true though. There's like, a, a lot. Things is because I've been watching stuff around the '92 LA riots. Okay. And hip hop culture is huge around there. Well, there's a tie-in. I mean, if you look at Wu Tang Clan. Um, like, they utilised a lot of um, like samples from Hong Kong yeah. action movies in their songs, splicing it in. So they directly took seventies exploitation stuff and moved it into the kind of nineties ghetto music sound. Yeah. Um, and uh, you seen Afro Samurai? I have. The soundtrack for that, uh, for those of you that don't know, Afro Samurai is uh, it's an anime Japanese animation film about a samurai played by Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, it's, so it's very kind of built around, again, kind of schlocky exploitation yeah. styles. Just black guy with an Yeah, but the soundtrack's by the RZA from Wu-Tang Clan. Okay. He, he did the compositions oh, for it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I just like Samuel L. Jackson. It's got Mark Hamill in as well. Mark Hamill's in everything. That's not, <laughs> that's not surprising. <laughs> he, I, 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 he does all the voice acting for everything. I made the surprised eyes, and I was like, wait, no, that's normal. Mark Hamill, it's just Mark Hamill. Anything that doesn't involve his face, as long as his voice acting, he does it. Like, You know, there's a, the, 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 the uh, licensed game of um, the third X-Men movie. He plays Wolverine in the game. That's he, amazing. He, but he plays Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> I remember there's a... Scene, there's, there's one scene in the Batman film, where, uh, Batman cartoon, where he's talking to four of his own characters. And just Mark Hamill talking to himself between four people. Oh, my God. <laughs> just dumb as shit. But that's probably us kind of done at this point, isn't it? Like, yeah, I think so. I'd, yeah, so I'd, what, we've done a camera, well, did a, what, for Hitch, I guess? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a big medium. There's a lot to dig into. I mean, if people want somewhere to start out, I would say something like Snuff is good, but you can ease yourself in perhaps with one of the parodies, like Black Dynamite is a good parody of black exploitation, or this one called Kung Pao, which parodies the whole Hong Kong action film thing. Like, they, to a modern audience those might be easier ways to ease your way in rather than going all the way in yeah it's just taking something and just making money out yeah pretty much like let's put in the film i can't even <laughs> remember the name of the film but there's a 70s uh samurai film that was pretty much the movie that kill bill was built out of it's the film tarantino made all the cast sit and watch and say it's got to be like this crap film that i've got in mind okay like 
I can't remember what it's called, but you look up look up Kill Bill, you'll find out what that film is. And perhaps yeah, if you're yeah. if you want to watch Kill Bill first, that'll get you that that's a film that's kind of more palatable, and then that might be easier to leap backwards to and and yeah. get into that world. Ah, cool. So I think that's it, right? Yeah, it should cool. be. That's done. Cool. And on that, I think we'll cut the music and we're we'll back for an outro. And we are back. So, um, any last words before uh, before we do an outro? No, just that it's been a pleasure. Cool. Uh, do you have anyone to plug or anything else to plug? No, not at the minute, no. I am really just my own man, my own free agent. Cool. So, in that, cool, in that case, um, my plugs this week will be for uh, Nothing Rhymes With Murder, which I've been listening to this week, and they're great. Well, I'm also going to give a shout-out to the um, History of the Howling. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I got invited to a like the releasing for it, but I couldn't make it. So I'm gonna just plug you real quick here. So uh, sorry I couldn't make it, guys. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, my cool thing of the week is gonna be Fortnite because I started playing that, <laughs> and I've forgotten what I was actually gonna plug. So that so. Oh yeah, it's literally just because I I forget, I've completely forgotten what um I was gonna plug. But yeah, fun game. You should go to play it. On that, uh, I don't think. Uh, we've got Patreon you can check out um, on patreon.com slash blood on the rocks. Little goodie, like goodies and stuff. Um, so you can get like exclusive Patreon posts, you can get some bonus episodes in, starting in a month or so. Uh, um And higher tier ones can get early episodes as well. And even some merch at certain bits. So yeah, you yeah, got a lot of cool stuff. Actually, needs feeding. Pretty much, please feed me. Yeah, we got another review this week from the Gone Cold podcast, which is also great and check check it out. Uh, which said uh, said extremely intriguing five star. Uh, I'm fairly blown away at Blood and the Rocks' concept. Several different topics in a single episode is a difficult task, uh, but it's brilliantly done here. The topics slash stories are always interesting and well researched, and the scripts well written. The narration is warm and as comfortable as speaking to it with a good friend over a few beers. Fantastic! So, uh, thank you for reviewing that. On that, I think we've got, just got social media to do. So we've got um, Facebook Facebook.com slash Bud and Rocks. Um, we've got which also has a Facebook group with a bit more discussiony bits, a little bit more interactive. Uh, we have Twitter at the Bloody Rocks and Instagram at the Bloody Rocks, and we have email at botrpodcast.gmail.com. And on that, I think we're done. So um, I'll see you next week. Tell your friends. Have a great evening. Uh, that VS Con. So bye. Bye. <laughs> You edit out the pause, right? No.